Good morning. My name is Alex, and I'm one of the pastors here at Knox, and I want to add my word of welcome to what Sam has already said. We are in the middle of a series for the summer on psalms, and various members of our staff team are preaching on their favorite psalms, and one of the things we've invited you to do is to choose a psalm and to memorize it this summer. And so we've been trying to model that as a staff team. And last week, Pastor Natasha, before she preached, recited Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is 19 verses, and I thought, she can do that. I can do Psalm 142, which only has seven verses. Well, I found this week that that part of my brain is a bit rusty, it turns out. So we're going to see how it goes. We're going to pray now for God's illumination of his word. We're also going to pray that... I can recite the psalm that I did memorize. Dear God, we pray that you would lead us into your truth today. Help us as we wrestle with our sorrows and convince us that we are more loved by the Father than we could ever have imagined. We ask, Holy Spirit, for more of your presence, more of your healing power in our lives. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Psalm 142, a maskil of David, when he was in the cave, a prayer. And maskil, as you will see if you've got a Bible open and you follow the footnote, a maskil is a musical term. We're not exactly sure what it means. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him, I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. This is the word of the Lord. And I think I have a little more work of memorization to do on that one. So this morning, we're going to be reflecting on the psalm we've just heard read, Psalm 142, which is a psalm of lament. Last Sunday, we also pondered Psalm 51, another psalm of lament. The dictionary defines lament as a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. I think Christians have a reputation in our culture, and it's not for lament. For some, we're these shiny, happy people with fake smiles on our faces. But that stereotype of believers doesn't hold up against Scripture. The Bible is full of broken people whose lives are a complete mess. Roughly half of the 150 psalms in the book of Psalms are psalms of lament. And the mere presence of so many psalms of lament makes it clear that we are not called to deny our sorrow or to pretend that everything is okay 
or to say dumb things when other people are suffering, like God has a plan. We follow Jesus, a man of sorrows, a man acquainted with grief. But do we consider our own sadness to be part of a true Christian life? Or do we assume that we should trust and obey and then we will be happy in Jesus? So if we're not happy, then there must be something wrong with us. Well, Jesus bids us come as we are, and he gives us a way to deal with life's suffering and grief. And that is the way of lament. About five years ago, I was preparing a sermon when the phone rang. It was a man who asked me to pray for him. He didn't give me his name. He told me he was completely alone, that he had no friends. They had abandoned him. They'd betrayed him. And he said no one cared for him, that he had nothing to live for. And so I prayed for him. And when I finished, I heard him weeping through the phone. I asked him, do you believe that God is with you in this? There was silence for a moment. And then he said, I don't know. And then, abruptly, he hung up. I can tell you it was hard to go back to sermon writing after that. When someone pours out their heart to you, it's powerful. It's arresting. We don't usually get that honest with each other. Maybe you personally have never gone through something like a dark night of the soul. But all of us have known sadness. Perhaps even great sadness. As the classic African-American spiritual puts it, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. It's true. We feel alone in our grief and our pain. Not even the closest friend can meet us there. And you can get lost in that darkness. Maybe that's why the Psalms of Lament have such a careful structure to them. They can help us find our way through the long night. And we're going to follow that structure this morning. So lament starts with an address to God. God wants us to be honest with him, to let him know directly when we're in trouble, to share that with him. Secondly, a lament presents the problem. Here it's David's conflict with King Saul, and as a fugitive, the isolation he has to endure while he's in hiding. Finally, a lament points the way to deliverance with a request for help, and the expression of trust. It reminds us of God's character. So the address, the problem, and the deliverance. This psalm, Psalm 142, starts on a very personal note. I cry aloud to the Lord. No small talk, no preamble, no explanation about what's going on. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. And the emphasis here is on speaking out loud expression. That's not always easy for us to do. Most of the time, I think we'd rather deny that we're in trouble. We want to pretend we're self-sufficient. Even when we're in severe difficulty, we may avoid God. We keep it all inside, and we go through the motions of our lives. Or we refuse to pray out of cynicism or because we're angry with God. There may have been a long time of silence before this psalm even began. But the first step back to being truly alive is always to turn to God, no matter what we have to say. 
And the Psalms give us a voice. They give us words for when we've been silent. They help us to pray our emotions, those deep things that we struggle sometimes to even put into words. Once we've decided to say something to God, the next question is, will you be honest? I pour out my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. Can you share your pain with God? Or maybe you assume that all God really wants to hear is your praise, that the only acceptable way to relate to him is by trusting and obedience. Well, in that case, you need to learn the language of lament. Lament is the biblical God-given way for us to deal with life's suffering and grief. The world's way is through distraction and denial by pretending we're okay and escaping from our difficulty, however we can do that. I have not seen the new Barbie movie yet. I read one review that compared the movie to a sermon, and to be clear, that is not a compliment. But in general, I hear it's really good. And I know from the trailer, which I have watched multiple times, more times than I care to admit, I love the trailer, I know that in Barbie land, every day is the best day ever. That's true until Barbie hijacks the dance party by asking Ken and her fellow Barbies, do you guys ever think about dying? There's a record scratch and the music stops. It's such a great un-Barbie-like question. And so Barbie sets out on a quest. She travels to the real world to find the truth about the universe. And I can't give you any spoilers because I haven't seen the movie, but perhaps you have. Look forward to talking about it after the service. Even though Barbie heads off to the real world, let's face it, that a lot of us do whatever we can to stay in our equivalent of Barbie land. We put on our pink headphones and we try to keep reality and suffering at bay. And the church may find itself in denial also. It can be hard to find worship music that laments. We want upbeat songs. We want triumphant hymns. We want the joy and victory of the Christian life, except we are not always joyful or victorious. Walter Brueggemann, the great Old Testament scholar, says, as Christians, we seek to go from strength to strength, from victory to victory. But such a way not only ignores the Psalms, It is a lie in terms of our experience. Much Christian piety and spirituality is romantic and unreal in its positiveness. Scripture makes it clear that Jesus was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. He wept with those who mourned, and he still weeps with us today. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen except for Jesus. So the address comes first. Next, we have a description of the problem. This isn't easy. All of us have sadness and heartache in our lives, but we don't talk about it. Imagine with me, after today's service, you're having lemonade or coffee. What's the right answer? What is the only acceptable answer when someone asks you the question, how are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. That's what you're supposed to say. It's a bizarre ritual we go through. We greet people by asking a question we don't really want them to answer truthfully. 
Do you know what this little word fine means? I had to look it up. It describes something of high quality. Some synonyms for fine are excellent, great, exceptional, outstanding, superior, splendid, magnificent, beautiful, exquisite, choice, select, prime, supreme, superb, wonderful, sublime. Are you still fine? I doubt it. Did I just ruin coffee and lemonade time for you? I once knew a guy who would ask people that question. And then when you said, fine, he'd get this intense look on his face and he'd lean in and he'd say, no, really, how are you doing? It was the most annoying thing. Most people are just trying to be polite when they ask, how are you? They don't want to hear about your problems. They don't actually want to know how you're doing. But God does. And he wants us as his followers, as his church, to grow in that listening, in that compassion. That's why we have got all these psalms of lament. And David does not hold back. In verses 3 to 6, we learn that he had two main problems, his enemies and his isolation. King Saul wanted David dead, and so he sent his soldiers to hunt him down. They have hidden a snare for me, he writes. You can read about this part of David's life in 1 Samuel chapter 22. This psalm gives us a glimpse of what David went through in that cave when he was in hiding. Now, most of us don't have enemies like that. For us, enemies are perhaps more likely to be emotions or even a lack of emotion. Maybe it's anxiety you wrestle with or depression or your pride. You are your own worst enemy, we sometimes hear people say. We also face conflict in relationships in our families or with someone in particular in your life who is holding you back, holding you down. Some of us do have real enemies, people who have actively tried to hurt us or even destroy us. Gossip and slander is the usual way this happens, but it can extend to financial or legal means as well, and even to literal violence. Then there's the enemy of our souls. The devil whispers his lies to us that God is not real or not good, that we are not loved, even that we are unlovable, and that we deserve to be alone. That God does not love us and that we don't need him. Whatever you identify with as an enemy, the trouble we feel leads to isolation. And David writes about it so poignantly here. No one, did you get that repetition over and over? No one, no one, no one. No one at my right hand. No best friend. No one's concerned for me. No refuge. No one cares for me. God designed us for relationship and community. When we are in that cave, when we feel abandoned or rejected, we are the farthest from what God wants for us. And yet, the cave can teach us like nothing else can. For one thing, the cave reminds us to read all of Scripture, all of the Psalms, not just the ones that make us feel good, not just the parts we like. If a Psalm of Lament 
doesn't seem like the pick-me-up you were hoping for on a late July Sunday morning. Maybe that's by biblical design. The point of praying the Psalms or singing them, the whole book of Psalms, the Psalter, we sometimes call it, as Christians have done over centuries, is to encourage you to find your place among the righteous who gather around the author of this psalm in its final verse. A psalm of lament draws you into the full and true congregation of God's people, righteous only by the grace of Jesus. Lament calls the Western church in particular to repentance for its individualism and into communion with all the saints who came before and all the saints who worship around the world today, the global body of Christ, as Paul gives us this picture of the church, calling it the body of Christ. Maybe this morning you cannot relate to being in prison at all. Maybe you don't have any enemies coming after you. But many Christians in other parts of the world do. I listened this week on YouTube to a Turkish pastor, Engin Ilurin, who used to be part of our congregation here at Knox when he was a student at Wycliffe College over at U of T. And he casually mentioned as part of his testimony that when he became a Christian in Istanbul as a 22-year-old, his entire family disowned him. And in the past, Engin has shared stories with me of friends of his who have been imprisoned for their faith in his home country. Look, you may be fine this morning, but will you stop to listen to the lament of someone who has just gotten a cancer diagnosis or lost a loved one? The Psalms of Lament can fire up our prayerful imagination and lead us into deeper love of our neighbors. Lament is not only for those who are suffering. It can lead you who are healthy and whole into the way of Jesus, into solidarity with the sorrowful and the afflicted. And it leads to God's kingdom coming into the world also as the church pursues justice and reconciliation on behalf of those who suffer. So lament leads outward, but it always begins within us. It's personal. Yes, We would prefer to live constantly in the sunshine of God's blessings, but sometimes we get the cave instead. Joseph, in the Old Testament, was wrongly accused and spent two years in jail. Moses and God's people wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They threw Daniel into a den of lions. The Apostle Paul was always getting arrested and ending up in jail. As all of them found, and as many of you have too, the cave is a place of darkness and death. It's where you die to yourself. The cave is also a place of testing. And if you're willing to face the truth about yourself, the cave will reveal just how much work God still has to do to get you ready for his good purposes. The cave humbles us so that we can echo the words of John the Baptist. I must decrease And you, Lord Jesus, must increase. God shows you who you really are in the cave. David was God's anointed one, chosen to be king. He must have been so confused and disappointed in that cave. But God put David there to separate him from everything he had valued up to that point. So that he would have no one else, and so that he would come to a place of complete dependence on the Lord. 
And it's right into that moment of emptiness that God shows up in this psalm. The final section of Psalm 142 is the deliverance. It comes through a request and a final expression of trust. Already in verse 3, there was a recognition that the Lord watches over my way. But the real turning point comes in verse 5, where David says, You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. It may be a small portion, just a glimpse at this point, but it leads to life and not to death. And it's in the next verse, David has just said, I have no refuge. And maybe you can imagine the weeks, the months, perhaps years of struggle between him saying that, saying, I have no refuge, and getting to the point of breaking through to recognizing that you, Lord, are my refuge. And then in verse 6, there's a request for rescue and freedom. He's still in desperate need, but he wants out. Here we see three realities that David hasn't lost sight of. First, that God is real, a true refuge, a source of life and comfort. And then there's the truth about himself, that he's weak, that he's not this self-sufficient warrior chosen to be king as he may have styled himself. And he's trapped in a kind of prison that he can't get out of. He can't get out of it on his own. He needs help. And lastly, he expresses a trust that he isn't alone, or won't always be alone, that the righteous will gather around him. Good people, people chosen by God to help him, to love him, to challenge him. And as we saw last week, David needed to be challenged, and he didn't always remain in that righteous fold. I think when we're honest, we can relate to that feeling of being trapped. What would you say is your prison today in your circumstances? Is it brokenness in your family, in your marriage, in a relationship? Maybe you're caring for someone, for young children, for elderly parents, a family member, a friend in need, and the demands, the burden of that feels like a prison to you. Some of us are trapped in cycles of bitterness and anger because of a hurt in our past or a disappointment we're dealing with right now. It may be the prison of compulsive behavior around gambling or alcohol, drugs, food, shopping, or sex. You may feel completely alone in what you're going through, and maybe you've just gotten used to that. But God is listening, and he wants to lead you out of that place, out of resignation, out of despair, into a new freedom. Nobody knows the trouble you've seen. It's true. Nobody knows your sorrow except for Jesus. Do you believe it? Could you? And then, once Jesus has come alongside you in that, he's going to ask you to help someone else. I remember at one of the lowest times in my life, my mother encouraged me to get out and to serve someone else in some way. I thought she was crazy. I was curled up in the corner licking my wounds. But you know, she was exactly right. She was basically saying, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Get out of that cave you're in, that cave of self-preoccupation, and you might find that the righteous will gather around you, that they will lift you up. If you're in the darkness right now, Jesus is calling you by name to come out and to meet him alongside someone else who is in distress, to love them 
and to receive the freedom of the Holy Spirit as you do so. God gives us the experience of suffering partly so that we can relate to the trouble people are going through and care for them better in their despair. He's equipping you. Do you see that? We talk about being the missional church sometimes. We talk about evangelism. You know, the best way to share the love of God for this city, and that is part of our mission statement at Knox, to love the city, the best way is through friendship with someone who feels alone and unloved. It won't be easy. It will require a commitment that may extend farther than you ever anticipated. But it's what Jesus calls us and commands us to do. As Christians, we should be experts in lament, not in health, wealth, and prosperity. If we follow Jesus, we have to take his words from the cross seriously. In Matthew 27, as he is being crucified, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right there, he's quoting from Psalm 22, another psalm of lament. And so as Jesus takes the sins of the world, God turns away from him. As Jesus drinks the cup of God's judgment, the cup he begged to be spared from in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is cut off from the source of life and light and goodness. His father turns away. And Jesus goes to that God-forsaken place so we don't have to. He becomes lost so that we can be found by God. Jesus loves us so much that he entered into our suffering. He who was without sin became God-forsaken so that you and I could be forgiven and could be made right with God. And now he is risen. The tomb is empty. With resurrection power, he speaks life into every cave where you might find yourself. And as we see in the final verse of this psalm, all of this leads into the praise of God. Then the righteous will gather around you because of his goodness to you. Jesus leads us on the way of lament and points us back into the life-giving relationships we were created to enjoy. Lament is not the end. It is a prayer for the time being. Jesus is risen from the dead, and so we know that this story will not end in sorrow. The day will come when the righteous will gather around you and around me once and for all. And at the center of everything and everyone will be Jesus who will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, and we will reign forever and ever. That is the promise of God's holy word to us this morning. Nobody knows the trouble you've seen. Nobody knows your sorrow right now. Nobody knows you like Jesus, and Jesus is with you. So for now, we lift our lament to God as we wait in hope. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.